Well, friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word as we continue our summer series through the life and ministry of David, um, the man after God's own heart. I, in addition to Jonah being an extremely interesting prophet that we're going to learn more about on Wednesday nights, we have one of the most intriguing, um, somewhat baffling, maybe enigmatic passages in the entire Old Testament, a passage that almost has no peer in terms of its, its uniqueness. I don't know what you would think about that, Dave, in terms of Saul's interaction with the medium or the witch at Endor, something that's almost unprecedented in the history of the Old Testament. Let's see what we can, what we can make out of this this morning. So we're going to be in 1 Samuel 28. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God. In those days, the Philistines, they gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish, Achish is the king of one of the Philistine cities. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me, wait, what? To go out with me and the army, and the Philistine army. What's up with that? David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now, Samuel had died. We'll find out that's an important detail. And all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. We'll find out more about that in a moment. The Philistines assembled and they came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Samuel said to his servants, this seems like a total non sequitur, seek out for me a woman who is a medium, a person who talks to the dead, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, behold, there is a medium at Endor. Now, I did give you a little map in your bulletin, and all of this will become more clear and easier to understand. Verse 8, so Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night and said, divine for me by a spirit, you know, use a spirit, maybe some kind of demon or whatnot, divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. The woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? The woman said to Saul, I see a God. That could also mean a spirit. I see a God or a spirit coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? She said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew 
that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. I can remember a number of years ago, my brother-in-law, Brett, asking me if I had tuned into a relatively recently released show called 24. Who here has ever seen 24 starring the exploits of Jack Bauer? My brother-in-law saw some things in common between Jack Bauer and me and thought that perhaps we would want to watch the show. There's absolutely nothing in common with me and Jack Bauer. He was the head of this fictional counter-terrorism unit in L.A., and you just can't imagine all the things that he got himself into. Well, watch we did. Thankfully, the show had been out for a little while, maybe a couple seasons, so to say that Stephanie and I went on a deep dive into 24 would be an understatement. And why did we go on a deep dive? Because every episode, how does it end? It ends with a massive cliffhanger. Okay, either a major character gets killed off or Jack finds a mole or Jack does something almost unforgivable. Okay, so the plot resolves in one way and then introduces something out and leaves you on the edge of your seat with a cliffhanger well, the writer of 1 Samuel does his very best to introduce a cliffhanger to the reader at the beginning of 1 Samuel 28. At the very beginning of 1 Samuel 28, the writer kind of continues, begins with this story about David and then cuts it off and picks up with Saul and the reader is left like reeling. What's going on? Okay, let's look at our passage today. The writer of 1 Samuel begins with an incredible cliffhanger. Verses 1 and 2. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war. Now, this was going to be, from their perspective, this was going to be a once-for-all decisive battle to break the back of the Israelites and take their land. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish, okay, he's one of the kings of the Philistine cities. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, you're right, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. What in the world is going on? How did we get here? Do you understand the dilemma that David is in? Let me just help you understand why this is such a cliffhanger. Do you remember back to last week, 1 Samuel 24, um, and how God graciously delivered Saul into David's hand? If you remember the last few weeks, we're in these chapters where Saul is hunting for David week after week, chapter after chapter. Last week we looked David was on the run. He and his 600 men, where were they hiding? Do you remember? A cave. Hiding in a cave in En Gedi. Do you remember how many caves we said there were in this area of En Gedi? Maybe a thousand caves. A thousand places to hide. Of all caves, Saul chose to take a bathroom break in the very cave that David and his men were hiding. God was delivering Saul 
into David's hand, I think, so that David could show mercy on him, so that David could be obedient and not lift his hand against God's anointed. And so God miraculously saves David. Two chapters later, 1 Samuel 26, we haven't covered that in a sermon, almost the exact same situation happens. Saul hunts for David again. They're in these hills in the wilderness. Saul and his 3,000 men camp out for the night. Saul and the commander of his forces, Abner, do you remember where they slept? So they're hunting for David. They break camp for the night, or they make their camp for the night. Saul and Abner, the commander of his forces, they sleep in the middle of 3,000 men. So David and Abishai go and sneak into the middle of the Philistine camp. Can you imagine the courage that it took to do that? David and Abishai sneak into the middle of 3,000 of the top forces of the Philistines. They sneak up beside Saul, and Abishai, David's right-hand man, suggests, let me go ahead and kill Saul now. The text has said the Lord had placed like a supernatural deep sleep on Saul and his troops so they would not hear David approach. Do you remember what David did? David said, we cannot raise our hand against God's anointed. I'll take his spear and his water, okay, so that I can demonstrate to Saul, I don't want to kill you. I've had two opportunities. I'm not going to raise my hand against you. I'm not a threat. Supernaturally, God delivered Saul into David's hand again. And um, after David takes the, um, the spear and the water and he and Abishai leave, David calls out to Abner and calls out to Saul and says, look, look what I have. I could have killed you. Saul feels convicted. Let's David go. Here's the point. God had miraculously saved David week after week after week after week. And the unthinkable happens in the next chapter. The writer of 1 Samuel says, David thought to himself, David didn't inquire of the Lord. David has the ephod. David has access to the will of God through um, Abiathar, the high priest. I know this is a lot of details. I hope you guys drink your coffee, drink your coffee. Well, I will say this. One of the challenges of these Old Testament texts, to bring them alive, there's a lot of history that surrounds them. And so to understand the literary tension, you have to understand a little bit of the background. So David and his 600 men, they are tired of fleeing Saul. But the Lord has made it clear to David, I want you in the land, you can trust me, I'll provide for you. But David thinks to himself, I've had enough. So David and his 600 men, they leave the land of Israel. Guess where they went? Of all the places they could go in the Middle East, where do they go? They go to Israel's nemesis, Israel's mortal enemy, the Philistines. Do you remember from your Bible reading, what was David's logic? Why did David flee and seek refuge with the Philistines of all people? Do you remember? Because Saul was very afraid of the Philistines. Saul wanted no part of the Philistines. So David thought to himself, you know, he was leaning on his own understanding. He goes and speaks to this Philistine king. And do you remember what David did? David offered to be a mercenary for the Philistine king. I'll bring my 600 men. We'll fight for you. We'll help you if you just give us a little area to live, an area called Ziklag. So the Philistine king considered it and said, okay, we'll do that. 
And David was incredibly effective as a mercenary for the Philistines. Okay, I won't get into all the background. And so all seems to be going well. He sought refuge from Saul. Saul's no concern of his. Achish, the king of the Philistine, loves David because David is performing these services. All was going well until it wasn't. What happens at the beginning? Let's look again at the first two verses of 1 Samuel 28. Everything's fine. He's serving as a mercenary for Achish until this happens. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me and the army. David's like, come again? I'm so sorry, what did you say? He says, you're to fight with me and go to war with me. Do you understand the position this puts David in? Are you doing the math? If David goes out and fights with the Philistines against his own people, if he kills his own people, what do you think that does for his kingship? That ends it. What do you think would happen if he told Achish, you know, really, this was all a ruse. I really wasn't serving you. I was acting like I was serving you. I don't want to do this. What would Achish and the Philistines do to David? They would wipe David out. So David is between, between a rock and a hard place. There is all this dramatic tension. What in the world is going to happen to David? How is God going to get him out of this? And then all of a sudden, the author of 1 Samuel totally leaves that story and breaks into another news flash. And the reader's going like, wait, what? What's going to happen to David? That's as good a job as I can do of creating dramatic tension. But that, that's what's going on. Out of nowhere, the author abruptly changes subject to Saul. And Saul is in an equally difficult situation. Saul is in a horrible situation. Let me try to explain to you why. A couple weeks ago, we had the 80th anniversary of a major naval battle. Does anybody know? June uh, 4th, 1942. Do you remember what that commemorates? Dave Clellan would know, of course. Dave wasn't there to fight in it, you know, <laughs> much too young. Um, the Battle of Midway. What happened at the Battle of Midway? Japan felt like they needed natural resources, and so they were invading countries all in the South Pacific, and they wanted to take out our aircraft carriers so they could have their way. And so we possessed this island out in the middle of the Pacific called Midway that they believed we would not let get taken by the Japanese. And so they attacked the island of Midway, and what they were hoping to do is draw out all of our aircraft carriers out in the middle of the South Pacific so they could destroy our aircraft carriers and have superiority in the Pacific. They wanted to fight a battle where they would have the strategic advantage. Now, thankfully, we had decoded their messages and we knew exactly what was going on. But that was their goal, to lure us out where they would have a massive strategic advantage. That's what the Philistines are trying to do. And when we look at the Bible map in just a minute, it will make all the sense in the world how the Philistines were hoping to draw the Israelites out for a final decisive battle. Look with me at verses 3 through 5. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. 
And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. Now, what's a medium and what's a necromancer? Think of like a modern-day psychic. I'm sure many of you have heard about mediums, you know, who perform seances and things like that, and they make promises of connecting you and helping you to talk to a deceased relative or something like that. That was strictly forbidden in the Old Testament. All the other nations employed like astrologers, mediums, psychics, necromancers. Israel was not. Israel was to trust in the Lord. Those things were strictly forbidden. And Saul, obediently, earlier in his reign, had kicked them all out of the land. Looking at my notes. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. Verse 4. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. I'm going to tell you why. Get your map out. I think this is interesting. The geography is interesting. You get insight to the mindset of the Philistines, what they wanted to do, what they were hoping to accomplish. So look at the red box, um, the top, the smaller red box, and they have enlarged the area of relevance. So to orient yourself, top right, Sea of Galilee. So we're kind of in northern Israel, okay? Not far north Israel, but moving towards northern Israel. Look at Mount Gilboa, kind of the bottom right of that shaded red box with the little uh, pyramid symbol. Mount Gilboa. That's where Saul's troops are. Look, you see Shunem? It's above Jezreel, kind of in the, a little bit above the middle of the text box. Shunem, that's where the Philistines, that's what they're camped. Guess what goes right between Mount Gilboa and Shunem? The Valley of Jezreel. This massive valley with this huge, wide open, flat floor. What is a huge, wide open, like flat surface, especially um, helpful for? What kind of weapon works really well on a large, wide open, flat surface? Chariots. The Philistines possessed superior weaponry. They had chariots, and they were on the northern side of the valley of Jezreel, which means the Philistines had cut Israel in half, north from the south. The Philistines knew if they camped in Shunem, look at your map. See Aphek, middle of the map, but far left? That was the northernmost Philistine city. The Philistines had gone all the way north and then east to Shunem to cut Israel in half. To say they possessed a strategic advantage would be an understatement. And they knew that the Israelites could not allow this to stand. They knew that the Israelites would have to attack. Well, where would the Israelites attack? Where would they have to go through to get to the Philistines at Shunem? Through the Valley of Jezreel where the Philistines could use all their chariots and wipe them out. That's why Saul is so desperate. Okay, two other key facts from three through five before we continue to remember. Samuel is dead. Samuel was Saul's right-hand man throughout Saul's ministry. Whenever Samuel had a question, I mean, whenever Saul had a question or needed advice or wisdom, he would go to Samuel. Samuel's dead. Also, 
the mediums and the necromancers, they had been kicked out of the land by Saul years before. Why? That was strictly forbidden by the word of God. Remember that. Let's continue on. Verses 6 and 7. I think this is very exciting. When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams, which was common in the Old Testament. God would reveal himself to the leaders of the land through dreams. That wasn't happening. Or by Urim. The Urim were a part of the ephod of the high priest. That was a way to get God's wisdom and counsel. And Saul did not have access to that. God wasn't appearing to Saul through a dream. He didn't have access to the ephod. It says, or by the prophets. Saul has been totally cut off from the Lord. Verse 7. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a, a woman who is a medium. The original reader would have been saying, Wait, what? Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. Okay, look at your Bible map. This is going to show you how desperate Saul is. He can't get access to the Lord. He's been totally cut off. He has no idea what to do. Look at your map. Um, it doesn't matter which text box. I guess you could go to the bottom text box in the, box in the red, and that's just a bigger version of the text bo box at the top of the chart. You can see it blown up better. Look at Shunem. That's where the Philistines, kind of middle of that box, but maybe a little above the middle. You see where Shunem is? What's right above Shunem? Say it out loud. Endor. So Saul, who is so mortified of the Philistines, he would not even go look at David when David is Philistia. He's been told, actually, there is a medium still in the land, and she's in Endor. Where would Saul have to go to get to Endor? He'd have to go right beside the camp of the Philistines and go around them. You know, to say that Saul was desperate is an understatement. So that's just shocking the lengths to which Saul is willing to go to go to this psychic, to go to this medium, okay? But Saul's not one for rules, as we've seen. Verses 8 through 14. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments, and he went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. Imagine what kind of treacherous journey Saul had to take at night to go all the way around so that he was not spotted by the Philistines to get to Endor. So much tension in the text. And he said, divine for me by a spirit, maybe some kind of demonic spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done, how he is cut off from the land, mediums and necromancers. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? What is that reinforcing to the reader? Stick with me. What is that reinforcing to the reader? That mediums and necromancers are strictly forbidden, that they had been kicked out of the land years before. Saul should not be here. And she's concerned that this is a setup, a setup designed to expose her. So she's very concerned. Look at verse 10. Look at what Saul says. He takes the Lord's name in vain, essentially. But 
Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. In other words, don't worry about it. Keep going. Verse 11. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. Now that's somewhat comical. Okay? About 30 years ago, a movie came out that many of you, not my young adult friends, but many of you, anyway, I was going to say, I won't say that. Anyway, um, a movie came out called Ghost with Patrick Swayze and Whoopi Goldberg, okay, about 30 years ago, and I, it's, it's not for children, so, it, but there's a very funny part. Whoopi Goldberg, her character, she was named Oda Mae Brown, okay, and she was a psychic. She was a medium, if you remember in the movie, but she was a fraud. She was a charlatan, and so there's this famous scene where Whoopi's character comes out in this gold dress, and she kind of puts on a show, and she's going to conduct a seance for this poor, you know, unwitting victim who wants to talk to one of her family members, okay? And then, you know, Oda Mae Brown, and she's doing all this stuff, and it's really funny because she's, like, saying, you know, um, I'm seeing some names, and she throws out all these names, and the woman's like, I don't know anybody by that name. And then she keeps thinking, and then finally she says, Maria, and the woman goes, yes, Maria. Maria is the mother of my deceased husband. She goes, oh, yes. And she goes, okay, now your husband, he, you know, I can see him more clearly now. Oh, he was a handsome man. And she's like, he was not a handsome man. She's like, oh. And then she's like, in glory, everyone's ha handsome or something like that anyway. So in the middle of this completely fake, fraudulent seance, um, Patrick Swayze's character, who's deceased, like starts talking to her. And Whoopi Goldberg's character screams out because she's actually hearing from someone who has passed away, if that makes sense. And she screams and she yells because she can't believe it's really happening. She was such a fraud. That's why this woman screams out in 1 Samuel 28. Something's actually happening. It doesn't normally happen. She's a total fraud. Saul tells her to call up the spirit of Samuel. She sees something. She cries out, oh my goodness, it's really happening. I think that's very funny. Um, <laughs> the woman said to Saul, so she's shocked. She kind of collects herself. The woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You're Saul. We're not sure exactly how she knew it was Saul. The king said to her, notice the urgency of his voice. The king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? In other words, keep going. We're getting close. I need you to finish. The woman said to Saul, I see a God or a spirit coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? She said, an old man is coming up. He is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And it really was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. The Lord had actually accommodated this incredibly sinful request by Saul. Where do you think Samuel was? Where in the world was he? Like when Moses and Elijah appeared to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, where did Moses and Elijah come from? Heaven. That's what we would call the intermediate state. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's where Samuel was. And Samuel had been 
disturbed. He was in glory with the Lord when the Lord allowed him to be called back to have this last interaction with Saul. Look at verse, go to panel six, and we'll end the story. Then Samuel said to Saul, this is the real Samuel. Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? He was in glory. He did not want to be brought back. Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. Saul has, had made his bed, and now he has to lie in it. No way of communicating with the Lord. Verse 16, and Samuel said, why then do you seek, why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you today. In other words, that's why you've been cut off. The Lord has rejected you. He's taken the kingdom. He's given it to David. You have no right to inquire of me as king anymore. It gets worse in verse 19. Moreover, the Lord, Yahweh himself, will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow, you and your sons shall be with me. In other words, that's a euphemism for you're going to die. You're going to be with me in the place of the dead. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. And Saul just, he just, he just, he faints. This news is so terrible, so horrible, he just falls over. He can't bear to hear it. In addition to Israel going down and being utterly defeated by the Philistines for a long time, he and all his sons would die. This was going to happen tomorrow. Can you imagine hearing that kind of news? Praise God, he does not tell us the future. Praise the Lord, he does not entrust us with that kind of information. So in a sense, like a curse, Samuel tells Saul, this time tomorrow, you and your sons, you're going to be dead, and Israel is going to be finished. Look with me at verses 20 through 25, the end of the story. Then Saul, we can all identify with this. I think I would have fainted if the Lord told me this. Then Saul fell at once, full length on the ground. He passes out, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him. For he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, absolutely terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you. She still views him as the king, and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. He was totally depressed. But his servants together with the woman urged him, and he listened to their words. So he rose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it. 
She took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it, and she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. This is the last night Saul would be alive. The first king of Israel. His last dinner was eaten with a witch. Oh, how the mighty had fallen. Do you remember what Israel asked for when they asked for a king? Do you remember that? What kind of king did the Israelites ask for? Do you remember? A king like the other nations. They got exactly what they asked for. A king just like the other nations. What message do you think the writer of Samuel is trying to convey to the reader? Be careful what you wish for. Do not trust in your own wisdom. Trust in the Lord and his provision. Now, I do think there's an important point here, and just listen for a couple minutes. I think a very important point here. People speculate regarding the person of Saul. When the story is over with Saul, he's going to die the next day. What do a lot of people want to know about Saul when his story is finished? What do you think? Have you ever wondered? The million-dollar question with Saul is what? Was he saved? Was he not saved? Was he cut off merely in his role as king, or was he totally, fully, and finally cut off? You know, is Saul in heaven, or is he not? Okay, there's evidence for both positions. What's the evidence for the fact that Saul is really an unbeliever? Well, he was rejected by the Lord. He was incredibly disobedient. He hunted mercilessly God's anointed. Okay, he killed the priests of God. He conducts a medium. God refers to him as his enemy. There seems to be a lot of evidence that maybe Saul's not a believer. Is there any evidence that he was a believer? Do you remember? What do you make of this? Let me just read a verse from 1 Samuel 10 when Saul was anointed. God said to Saul, when you come into the city, you will prophesy and you will be turned into another man. Do what your hand finds you to do for God is with you. And God gave to Saul another heart. What do we make of this? God makes Saul into a new man. Saul gives, God gives to Saul a new heart. That's kind of a metaphor perhaps for conversion. What do we do with this? Was Saul saved? Was he not saved? Was he a believer or an unbeliever? Well, guess what? We will never know. And we don't need to know. Here's why I bring this up. In my pastoral experience, I have been approached by many people who are, just, who are just worried to death that their beloved mother or father or brother or sister, someone who has passed away, is not with the Lord. And it's gut-wrenching to them, and it keeps them up at night, and it's just like they can't get any peace because they believe in the doctrine of hell. They believe that's true and they didn't see any fruit in the life of their you know, deceased mother or father. And it's just psychologically paralyzing to them. What do you think this passage teaches us? Don't try to judge another person's heart. Don't go there. Leave those questions 
to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is just, but he's also merciful. I am not saying there is another way to God except through Jesus Christ. There is not. But due to sin and finitude, we are not in the position to read another person's heart. Why do you think the Gospels include the thief on the cross? I think one reason that the Bible includes the thief on the cross is that it is possible for someone to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ at the very end of their life and be saved. And it's not for us to try to pry into those eternal things. And so if you know of a person that's passed away that you don't think knew the Lord or you didn't see fruit or something happened at the end of your life, leave that with the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Their soul, their life, their destiny is in the very best hands they can be in. Our call is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, to share Christ, to love people and share with them the truths of the kingdom. But, but concerning what happens after that, we leave that with the Lord. And I think that's a really interesting and crucial thing we can take from this. Last thing I'll say, I know we've gone over. Last thing we'll say. There is a literary sandwich here, not a Markin sandwich. We might call this a Samuel sandwich. How does the passage end? With David. Gets interrupted. Then we get Saul. Next chapter, it goes right back to David, where David is, is miraculously delivered because the Philistines end up kicking David out. They don't want David to go into battle with him. They kick David out. David was saved by the Philistines again. The purpose of Samuel is to help the reader understand salvation comes through the house of David, not through the house of Saul. The house of Saul is cut off. There's only one hope for Israel, and it comes in the house of David. Saul is cut off. David is delivered. God's anointed comes from David and David's greater son. Do not trust in your own wisdom. Trust in the wisdom of the Lord who gave us David. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we just don't have enough time. We do not have enough time to mine all the riches of this passage. Father, we could be here for, for days and weeks learning about all the connections to the new covenant and the person and work of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for giving us this bracketed text, uh, section of Scripture which shows that you always, always, always deliver your anointed and that there's salvation in no other house but his. Father, we are a people tempted to trust in our own understanding. Father, help us to trust the wisdom of the gospel in the person of Jesus Christ. We pray in his matchless name. Amen.